Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity and infinite combinations. My name is Andy, and thanks for tuning in. With me today, I have Grace. Good morrow, good listeners. (laughs) And also, Sarah. I have nothing to follow that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I mean, really, who would? Before we get into our main topic, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to do. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. So if you're interested in that, feel free to visit us at www.patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And just as a heads up, we do have a tea Public store now with new designs based on our banner art. And we also have logos and some other non-podcast-specific Trek designs. So feel free to check that out. That's at tpublic.com slash stores slash women at work. Cool. Okay, so today our main topic is memorable meals in Star Trek. And basically, I thought of this when I thought about how sad I was that we weren't going to get a good Thanksgiving this year. uh, Because, you know, of the plague and stuff. Because the world is happening, and it's not happening the way any of us want it to right now. Exactly. Yeah. And I was I was starting to think about all of the really hilarious and awkward and weird meals, communal eating scenes we have in Star Trek. And I thought it would be kind of fun to kind of discuss them and what they mean to us. And it'll be just in time for Thanksgiving. And let's be real, for a lot of us, Thanksgiving is the primary awkward meal of the year for us. Especially during an election year. Oh, totally. (laughs) It always takes me back to the SNL thing when uh, they just announced that Trump and Clinton were running against each other. And they're like, the only nice thing any families have to talk about at Thanksgiving right now is the new Adele video. Uh, Yes, I remember that sketch very well. So for good and for bad family relations, we here at Women at Warp are here to give you a meal experience socially. (laughs) By proxy and by Star Trek, which really is the better way to do it, don't you think? (laughs) Well, and there's just so much to say, I feel like, about food. Mm -hmm. Because I think people take it for granted. It's something you, you have to eat every day. but it can vary so much based on personal habits and culture and like the amount of social interactions that are like tied up in having meals with each other is just a really interesting and dense topic, I feel. It's a fascinating topic to do a deep dive on, definitely. You know, I'm really interested in, and this just occurred to me, was that I'm in awe of a lot of the dinner setups they have on Star Trek. But then if you think about it, they didn't have to do any cooking. They don't have to do any dishes afterwards. So, of course, they're going to just make their table look amazing. Yeah. They have the time. This is going to be a 15-course meal because we don't have to clean a damn dish afterwards. (laughs) It's kind of interesting, too, how many varied kinds of meals there are and how many of them are represented in Star Trek. Because the very first one that I even thought of when I thought of this concept to begin with is the Star Trek Undiscovered Country... (laughs) diplomatic dinner mess oh it is the granddaddy of awkward (laughs) dinners in star trek it truly is i feel like it's a gold standard (laughs) (laughs) against which all other awkward meals in trek must aspire to and but the thing that i love so much about it is it's 
really well written, like dialogue wise and character wise, but it's also it's like the entire movie distilled into one scene, like the themes of the movie all in one place. It is pretty much the, if you want the gist of the whole movie, you can just watch that essential scene and get the vibe of it pretty well. Yeah. So I'm going to assume there aren't very many people who don't remember Undiscovered Country, but the scene we're talking about is basically the Klingons come to dinner on the Enterprise and they have a really awkward diplomatic dinner in which they're trying to kind of like feel each other out and kind of prepare for a possible truce between them, but there's lots of distrust. And just neither side is having it. Yeah, cultural misunderstandings. It's it's pretty great. I don't know. You really feel for Gorkon and Spock because they are there for diplomacy and it seems like Kirk and Chang are just there to flex. Yeah, yes, basically. 100%. Like you can really tell which people are there because they're invested and they're really trying to make this work versus the ones that are just there and really don't want to be. <laughs> I mean, oh, claiming Shakespeare for another species is a pretty bold move. Yes, it is. Very bold. I'm trying to remember who it is who walks onto the launch pad with a giant freaking tooth. Like oh, it, it's Gorgon. That is such a flex right there. <laughs> Just like, hey, here's my giant animal tooth. <laughs> what, this old thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone has one, right? Just carries it around as a prop. This is just my walking stick. You wouldn't <laughs> deprive an old man of this, would you? Yeah, pretty much. And one of the comments we got on Twitter I thought was interesting from Amy, who said, Nick Meyer made the food blue because he thinks there's not enough blue food in real life. And he's right. I think she's right. I mean, one of the things that I like about the blue food is it looks kind of off. It makes that awkward tension make sense almost because everything is just a little bit off. And it's just visually interesting. But apparently the blue food was so gross because they had to, like, dye it with so much crap that the actors actually were bribed to eat it and they were offered $20 per bite. I'd do it. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently Shatner Shatner did the best (laughs) and then puked. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I'm sure was all manner of majestic colors. Yeah, apparently it's like squid dyed blue, which, okay, yum. Okay, so this is a thing that I find really interesting about how how alien food is portrayed in this movie and how we see it get portrayed over and over again, actually, in Star Trek. And with the blue food thing, that actually speaks to a specific sort of proven scientific phenomena where the human brain... Like, way back in our primordial lizard brain will a lot of the time see blue food and, like, blue plates. We don't usually see naturally blue food, so it it triggers the, this is bad, this this food has gone bad, it is rotten instinct in us. So that's probably one of the reasons we don't see a lot of artificially blue food. It's also the reason why a lot of, like, diet cultures and a lot of fad diets and stuff recommend eating your food on blue plates because it'll encourage you to eat smaller amounts, in theory, because it triggers that part of your brain that thinks something is off about this. That's funny. I always thought so. Well, one thing that I think is that kind of the underpinning of the whole tension there is just straight up microaggressions. (laughs) And racism. <laughs> How many microaggressions does it take for it to just be an aggression aggression? <laughs> I really like it, though. I like the conversation that Azetber especially is like, checks 
checks check off. Yeah, it's great. It's like, oh yeah, inalienable human rights. Do you even hear yourself, bro? Like, Watch yourself. I love that. Watch yourself, you little Russian. <laughs> but I think that plus the scorn that the Enterprise crew has for like different table manners, and then also kind of the the othering of the Klingons mixed with the Klingons using human culture to seem sophisticated. I find it really interesting. Some interesting dynamics there. Yeah, there's a question of whether they're using, like, Shakespeare culture to seem sophisticated or if it's something that genuinely the Klingons have, like, latched onto and were like, oh, yeah, we're all about this stuff. And it's really sweet that Uhura tries to be like, so you guys like Shakespeare? And it doesn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Overall, this is probably my favorite scene in this movie. It's great. It's truly amazingly well done. It's also very short considering how much kind of thematic elements are added to it. But the cherry on it that actually makes me love this scene is the very end where Spock is like, you guys suck. (laughs) (laughs) You guys all screwed this up so bad. I like though they don't spoon feed it to you, but... Really, and I forgot her name, Kim Patrol's character. Ooh, yeah. Valeris. Valeris. She set up the whole thing. She's the one who said, let's break open the Romulan ale. Mm-hmm. She made sure that dinner was a failure. Well, and then there's the, the scene right after the Klingons beam aboard and the two crewmen are like being super racist. Mm-hmm. And she kind of like comes and she gives them the eyebrow and she's like, don't you have work to do? And you can read that scene the way I did the first time, which was like, stop this shenanigans. They're not befitting Starfleet. And then when you look at it after knowing where she's coming from, you're like, oh, she's telling them to go forth and assassinate. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just think is brilliant because there's two ways to read that scene. And like one, it's perfect because if you're watching it for the first time, it reads one way. And if you're watching it for the second time, it reads a totally different way. You got to love that when there's layers upon layers. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It's such a good murder mystery. Yeah, so much. The whole idea of food as a cultural exchange kind of flows right into another episode I want to talk about, which is A Matter of Honor, which is Mm -hmm. the Klingon exchange student episode (laughs) where Riker goes and serves on a Klingon ship. And I appreciate that his pre, you know, serving on a Klingon ship thing is like, nah, I'm all in. I'm going to try all the Klingon food and I'm going to I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I appreciate that in the sense that you know Riker would be a really fun dude to go like try out a new kind of cuisine with and be like, oh, let's try a little bit of everything. I really appreciate that. The the scene in Ten Forward he has with Pulaski and Picard, I think. And they're both just such fogies about the whole thing. But I just really appreciate how he's like trying everything because yeah. as someone who loves to travel... That's what you got to do. Yeah. Like, I would show up to, to restaurants and places and just point to shit and be like, bring me that. Like, what, why not? I will try anything once. Yeah. And sometimes it's uh, really gross. And sometimes it's delicious. Yeah. Sometimes it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But that openness to a new culture is, I think, really cool and kind of like the whole point of this episode. Yeah. That's always Riker, right? He's always just open to new cultures and not judgy. And new experiences. Yeah. He's excited to explore. He's excited to try a little bit of everything on this table. <laughs> yeah. 
We had a comment from Jennifer on Facebook who basically was like, she picked this episode and was like, Riker interning on the Klingon ship, <laughs> Pippius Claw, Heart of Targ, and gah, owning that food. Yeah, he's going for it. He's all in. Yeah. Apparently they made they made that food out of like turnips and pumpkin pies dyed red. Like they were doing lots of interesting stuff. The gach was brown noodles, which looks right. Yeah, I recognize the Pippius Claws as chicken feet. And also yes. in, in our notes, uh, according to prop master Alan Sims, he most of the things Sims bought were from an Asian market. Which makes me wonder, that scene must read really differently if you grew up eating chicken feet and other things that are recognizable. They're like, oh, this is, really? This is alien to you guys? <laughs> okay, weirdos. But I think that brings up an interesting point, Grace, in that this kind of disdain for other cultures' foods is super common and is steeped in a lot of racism. Oh, totally. Totally. I feel like every couple months, somebody gets dragged on Twitter for doing a quote tweet of what food don't you like, and it's just like, all that icky Asian food. And it's like, okay. Or Indian food. You know, like, there's just this gross kind of disdain it's just so weird how disdain for a culture's food can be such an extensive shorthand for disdain of that culture especially when we're talking about the sense in which food is representative of that culture not just in the sense of that food comes from that culture obviously but in sort of the idea of like sharing a table and sharing a meal being an active participation of the culture and an attempt to share something with others in the fact that it's kind of like taking this here is our food it is this gift to you please appreciate see what we have to offer and then taking that and being a bitch about it it's, uh, it's such a pain and i'm just i'm sorry there's a there's a reddit post going around right now of a guy say asking if he's the asshole for accusing his wife of child abuse for making the food spicy and then the further he gets into it he's like well she's a surgeon and works full time but I insist she does all the cooking, but she's Asian, so she always makes everything really spicy. So I always insist that she makes it less spicy for me, and she didn't have time to make three meals, and so I got really mad at her, because onions are just too powerful. It's like, what the hell? So it's a throwaway the whole man post. <laughs> yeah, one Basically, of yeah. Well, I think part of the reason why that whole disdain thing gets really icky is because food is so personal. Yeah. It's... And it's not just culturally personal. It's like what your parents made you when you were sick or like you get associations with a really good meal that you had with a friend or, you know, it just it gets tied up very sense memory like with a lot of really personal things. And also, it's one of the ways that people show love. Yeah. And also, Grace, you were talking about like this whole cultural exchange idea that we were talking about as like someone welcoming you to their culture by saying, I made this. Yeah. And it it makes me think of like when I was traveling, especially in college when I was like living in the Middle East, one of the things that would happen is literally I'd be like at the store and this little old lady would come up to me and be like, you're coming home with me now for dinner. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah i guess this is a thing that is happening now and then they would bring me home with them and just make me food yeah and it's so loving it's it such a loving gesture 
I'm Jewish, so um, the idea of I am feeding you and this is my catalyst for showing you how I care and showing you everything that me and my family have to offer you just to the best of our ability is very deeply ingrained in, in my culture. So that that's always something I think about. And it's funny how that ties into religious cultures in general. I think there's a book called like Women, Food, and God, all about the different variations of that across the Abrahamic faiths. But yeah, it's it's a big thing. Food is a very intimate thing across cultures. Well, and I think where I grew up was like, is very much a middle class white not quite suburban, but almost suburban kind of culture. And for us, food is not that. Yeah. It is very much cheap, fast, and like... Full of mayonnaise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was my guess. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> but also, mayonnaise is good sometimes. If you put sriracha in it, you can call it aioli and pretend it's not mayonnaise. Japanese, like, cupy mayonnaise. I love that stuff. <laughs> also, Belgian mayonnaise. It's, it's wild. Everyone should try it at least once. I was going to say, in Japan, uh, we use mayonnaise as salad dressing. Yeah. There you go. See, it's not just white people in the Midwest, Grace. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's an international phenomenon. Mea culpa, mea culpa. There is a wider <laughs> culture of mayonnaise that I uh, misrepresented there. But I do really think that there is often, like, a disconnect between this fast and not communal. Yeah. Like, when I was growing up, we had we had communal meals, but they were special occasions. Me and my mom didn't eat dinner together. <laughs> she was working. I, I ate alone. And so this idea of, like, sitting around a table with everybody and, like, sharing food was very foreign to me. Badoomch. <laughs> Very alien, you might say. Alien. But So then when I went overseas, it was like, it blew my mind. It, it made me think of food in a whole new way, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't understand people who don't like food. And I have actually had this be like a deal breaker in relationships before when someone realized, <laughs> I love food. I love talking about food and I love eating and I love trying other people's stuff and I mean, like, oh, food just doesn't really matter to me. It's like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah, I can't speak for everyone, but I know that I had a really complicated relationship t to food because of being fat. Yeah. So, like, I had uh, extreme shame about food for a long time, and it took years to unpack all of that and, like, find a new love of food and find a new personal, like, relationship with food that involved me eating healthy food and not just avoiding eating whenever I could. Yeah. And there is a whole wide range of different types of relationships you can have food with food. And, and I should respect that. But at the same time, it's important to you. People who are just like, it is nutrient paste. Just give me whatever. I will eat every meal with processed chicky fingies and call it good. That, that's, <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't sit with me. <laughs> Especially because, and this is, this is a sad me fact, but one of the things I've missed the most about uh, socially distancing and being in quarantine is not being able to, to cook or prepare food for friends as my way of saying, I love you. Look at this thing I made. I make people pie as a shorthand for you are one of my favorite people all the time. Oh, pie is so good. Yeah. I don't cook, but I make cheese plates. That's something too. I, I love cheese. So. <laughs> 
Well, we're going to have to have a cheese plate party. Yay! That sounds awesome. Charcuterie. Okay. We got way off of Star Trek, though. (laughs) This was a matter of honor talking about a matter of honor. (laughs) In general, I think what's great about this episode, getting back to a matter of honor, is that the episode itself is about othering. Like, Mm -hmm. and it makes me think of how lonely it must be for Worf generally on the Enterprise and how nice it must be for ha- to have someone else understand what that feels like. Because I really love, there's a scene where when Riker comes back, him and Worf have a nice little scene where there's just a little acknowledgement of how hard it is to be a non-human on the Enterprise. And we get some of that with the B-plot as well with, I think his name is Mendon also doing this exchange program and how it makes everything more difficult. It makes all your personal relationships more difficult. Wow. And it's amazing how food can be representative of that. Yeah. Maurice Hurley, when he was talking about this episode, he said that he wanted to explore what it must be like to be the only blackface in the room of 40 white people. And that's what Worf, in a sense, is doing. He's the only Klingon on a basically human ship. Mm-hmm. So we said, let's spin it. Let's put somebody on an all-Klingon vessel and see how that works. What is it like to be a fish out of water? Mm-hmm. So I think they nailed that completely. Yeah, I would definitely say so. This was one of the more popular responses on our on our socials. I'm glad. I'm glad that it was one that was based around being... You know, at least one person being positive and excited about trying new things. Also, apparently, this is the episode where Klingon blood wine makes its first appearance. Ooh, memory really? Alpha says. Oh. And all I can say is Memory Alpha probably knows better than me. So, <laughs> Well, moving on from, like, cultural exchange onto straight-up aggression, my next favorite one is TNG Face of the Enemy. Ooh. When we get this amazing showdown between Troy and Toreth, which if people do not remember Face of the Enemy, you should definitely rewatch it because it's amazing. It's the one where Troy wakes up on a Romulan ship and has Romulan makeup on and oops, she's a spy now and nobody told her. And yet she rises to the occasion beautifully. And we have this wonderful, very antagonistic scene that I like to think of as like a duel between Troy as a Tal Shiar operative and Toreth, who's the, the commander of the Romulan ship. It's bar none one of the best Troy episodes, and we definitely get to see in this episode, and in this scene specifically, uh, we get to see the side of Troy that we don't usually get to see, of her usually being the sensitive and empathetic person, being like, no, I will dish it out as good as it is thrown at me, and it's so powerful. And I like how that's kind of reflected in the way she's just served up this Romulan food, and she just kind of digs in like, nope, this is what I'm doing. Well, and Toreth uses the food as a test of her, mm-hmm. and she messes it up and still passes, Yeah, which I think is amazing. So Toreth basically is like, here, try the whatever Romulan dish. Mm-hmm. And Troy picks up totally the wrong thing, and she's like, well, you could have at least tried it. And she's like, it smelled bad. <laughs> I have never seen such terrible Romulan dish who can remember what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I've had better on a prison vessel. Yes, it's exactly what she says. So... This idea of all of the things that they're saying has multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. I mean, Toreth is starting out and you think that she's like just telling some throwaway story about a mission of hers. And then at the end, she's like, 
And the intelligence officer from that in charge of that mission was executed. And then she looked straight at Troy and like, it's like, hmm, I wonder why I brought that up right this moment. I love that in a story about about Troy being forced into a different face, literally so much of the plot is based around being two-faced. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. I appreciate that a lot. Well, the whole thing is about like the cracks in Romulan society, the the distrust between the Tal Shiar and the military, and how they have like this civilian leadership and then the military and then the spies and like how much they don't work well together and how that causes them problems mm-hmm. all the time. Well, I will say that one of the things that I did while researching uh, this episode is I looked into rules of etiquette and manuals of politeness. <laughs> Just because I wanted to see how kind of some of these situations stacked up in that degree. And big ups to Teresa McElroy of Schmanners, who I was able to get the recommendation for Florence Hartley's The Ladies' Book of Etiquette and Manual Politeness. (laughs) A complete handbook for the use of the lady in polite society. There's an extended title, but I found some A-plus quotes in there just about how being politeness is about being straightforward, putting your best foot forward. And I like that so many of these scenes are based are based in the opposite of that, and that's part of what makes them awkward, is that everyone, that a lot of the ones that are uncomfortable for everyone is because they've either got an ulterior motive beyond wanting to, you know, be nice and having a good time, and that's what gives everyone a really crappy time. Well, the, the start out of the book is, in, in preparing a book of etiquette for ladies, I would lay down as the first rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So if we were talking about Toreth, it'd be like, stab people in the front instead of the back. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just so many great, bizarre little one-liners in this book that I found, and I really want to actually keep reading it just for that. But there's so many little examples of, like, Rudeness will propel where courtesy will attract friends in terms of be genuine. Don't try to butter people up. Don't try and talk down to them. Try to be genuine and straightforward and you will have actual meaningful conversation. Or you could you could do this meal in which everybody is an inch from going to their, for their weapon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Politeness forbids any display of resentment. The polished surface throws back the arrow. <laughs> also, I think Romulans are just allergic to straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I think that they would actually find if 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 Romulans were writing this etiquette book, they would be like, "Never be straightforward. That insults your enemy's intelligence." Romulan Emily Post would be wild, <laughs> <laughs> and I want to see it. But I can just picture they're like, "Here are a bunch of icebreakers that will expose your enemy's weakness," <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I mean. Fifty conversation starters that will force your opponent's mask to drop and then leave them a crushed <laughs> shell of their former self. How to poison your neighbor's entree without being noticed. <laughs> oh, I would read that. I would read that 100%. And, you know, they designed the chairs and the table settings and stuff from scratch, and they had no idea, like, what Romulan food or table settings would look like. Yeah. And it looks pretty cool. Yeah. I would have expected the chairs to be wider for their giant padded shoulders. <laughs> Uh, has to match the silhouette. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, like when I was shopping for furniture for my new place early this year, I found a whole website of chairs used in Star Trek 
No way. Mostly high-end designer chairs, like thousands of dollars for a single chair kind of thing. That's really cool, though. After I read that about the chairs, I took a look at them when I rewatched this scene, and they're pretty cool. They're very intricate, which I guess makes sense for Romulans, but a part of me feels like Romulans would be like, it's a chair. (laughs) It should be... just like straight angles it should be i, ca- I kind of like the idea of them being super into mid-century modern aesthetics or that sort of swedish minimalism thing yeah icelandic primitivist style that's what i was thinking of because <laughs> i also <laughs> threw in a good place reference there <laughs> oh that's funny other fun facts about this episode is that they were gonna have it be crusher yeah which would have been interesting i feel like beverly could have done this duel i feel like she could have but they eventually decided troy made more sense because of her empath abilities which i mean i can't argue with and honestly troy does not get enough cool episodes but neither does beverly so i could have seen that being pretty cool but it's so cool that we get to have like this these big dramatic scenes going on between two uh women characters which we it feels like so rarely actually get in star trek even when we're talking about these amazing women characters we get We don't get a lot of women going full out against each other, it feels like, in terms of just dramatic dialogue like this. Yeah, and they wrote Torith as a a male character and then cast a woman, so... See, guys, gender-blind casting can work if you actually commit to it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Everything that they're talking about is very pointed, and, and none of it is softened, which I think is interesting. And I love it. But I will say that this whole, like, dual kind of meal is something that happens in Star Trek a lot. Mm-hmm. Somebody brought up on our Facebook Space Seed as another one of these kind of, like, dual meals where uh, Khan and Kirk are kind of, like, feeling each other out and trying to learn about each other. I love how that always makes me think of how every... I don't know why we get them in just about every old Bond movie, but we always get, like, a dramatic dinner thing at the enemy lair, and it's like, why are you bothering to, to make this guy dinner? Why? Why why is this part why is pageantry such a big part of this? Pageantry and vaguely explaining your plans. That doesn't seem like a good idea at all. But if you don't get any pageantry, what's the point of being a villain? True. Yeah, that's true. True. And Khan was very extra. That's so also this, true. This worked for him nicely. Yeah. I mean, you could also uh, look at the one of Jarrah's favorite scenes, which is the Alfaria and hair, hair pasta <laughs> f- uh, food fight between Neelix and Paris. Yeah. Now that was an awkward conversation over food. <laughs> I just like that they're one of the few ones that were like, you know what? Enough with the duel of words. Let's duel with pasta. <laughs> it's a pasta-based argument. Let this be our last pasta-based battlefield. they were just like let's throw down with a big handful of pasta right in your face i dig that feel like that that should happen more often really i mean i guess with a replicator you'd feel a lot less guilty about food fights there are a a lot of scenes um with like food fight like qualities there's that discovery scene when I think it's in one of the short tracks, that Tilly short track, where the replicator just loses his mind and just is, like, tossing sundays at her face. And it's pretty great. I enjoy a good food fight. Gotta say. Ugh. Messes are funny. You know what else I enjoy? What? Garishier dates. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, we talked about diplomatic dinners. This is a different kind of diplomacy. Yeah, this is a romantic 
feeling out of uh, somebody's romantic attentions. They have a lot of dates, y'all. Like, a lot. <laughs> so, Grace and I did a Star Trek panel at Wizard World last year. And afterwards, we were so tired. Went back to my house and we're just like, okay, let's watch a bunch of Bashir episodes. And so, we started <laughs> with the episode where Garrick meets Bashir. And I just remember being like, oh my god, was this always so gay? Yep. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was very gay. Uh, that episode is called Past Prologue, and it's their first date. And their first date comes in the third episode of the first season. So, like, they laid that groundwork early. I love the progression in their relationship that we get throughout these, though, in terms of how the show goes forward. We see such... Uh, what am I trying to say here? Both a representation of how comfortable Bashir is becoming, like, with his situation on Deep Space Nine and with this whole intriguing world of Garrick that he's sort of getting pulled into and how in control he's getting with that. And also just how personally engaged with the whole thing Garrick is getting over time, rather than just, this is an interesting novelty, like to oh these are these are people i know and work with and this is someone whose company i value yeah and that first one is kind of funny because they play it very interesting and it's kind of out of it's not the same as the rest of them so you've got bashir acting very wide-eyed and naive (laughs) and then you've got garrick almost being a bit predatory and I, Andrew Robinson has since said in the DS9 documentary that he was like, I want to be really clear, he wanted to have sex with him. <laughs> and I was like... We noticed. We noticed. We definitely got that, bro. Like, that was very clear. Twerent subtle. Twerent subtle at all. But, I mean, some people didn't get it. So, obviously, I mean, your mileage may vary on this one. But for me, I was like, gay? <laughs> But it's different because as we go on, they become much more equal in the power dynamics. Mm-hmm. You get less wide-eyed Bashir and, like, Garrett gets less condescending, I think. But one of my favorite kind of, like, little bits after this first past prologue date is Bashir goes straight to Ops to O'Brien and starts gushing about how the spy wanted to have lunch with him. Dude, you're not going to believe this! We're not even friends yet, and I have to tell you. I know, it's amazing! That's the third episode! (laughs) And, like, at the time, they did not really have that whole Bashir O'Brien bromance thing going on, and he just goes straight to him, and he's like, guess what? (laughs) And O'Brien's like, I don't care (laughs) at all. So, really just an excellent outing all around, I would say, for these folks. An outing in multiple senses. Their first date was awkward. Every first date is awkward to a degree. True. True. And then, over the course of their many, many dates, I I noticed that season three has a habit of doing cold opens with a Garrick and Bashir date, (laughs) which I can't be mad at. I'm, I'm happy with that. What's to be mad about? And they spend a lot of time talking about literature, mostly. (laughs) It's kind of their cultural exchange thing, too, isn't it? They're talking about Cardassian literature versus human literature. So while the food isn't such a primary aspect of it, it is about sort of the, the cultural exchange and the putting forth of what your culture has to offer. Yeah, I feel like we underestimate how much having food makes things less fraught. Because there's something else you, there's a reason why like dinner and coffee and drinks are the most common like first date 
sorts of things yeah. is like there's something else there. There's a reason that you're there. There's a task at hand. Exactly. And so it makes it less it ha- it gives it less pressure mm-hmm. as a social interaction. So you can sit and have tea with a friend and then discuss Cardassian novels and offend your Cardassian boyfriend <laughs> by telling him that the novels that he's recommending are too repetitive. Your culture is kind of a downer, man. <laughs> it gives a structure to your meeting. So you're drinking your tea. And when you're done, if you're still enjoying the conversation, you get another tea. If not, you're like, oh, I'm done. Time to go. Yes, that's very true. That's yeah. a really good point. There's even one of their dates. Bashir is rushing and and, and Garrick's like, well, I guess we're not getting dessert. He's all like, salty about it. But I just really love that they built this relationship out with these little, especially lunch dates. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, they have all of these thematically relevant conversations. Like Improbable Cause is the one where Garrick's shop gets exploded Yeah. exploded Yeah, exploded mm-hmm. And they're talking about Julius Caesar and how he doesn't see his betrayal coming. Mm-hmm. And Garrick's like, what a moron. How how did he not see the, you know, bad vibes coming his way? And then he goes downstairs and gets blown up in his own shop. Oh, my hubris! <laughs> but, I mean, Garrett, they do have a really interesting conversation, too, in that specific Caesar conversation, in which Bashir is rushing to get to the infirmary, and, and Garrick's like, humans are always rushing when they're eating. And he starts making all these very large cultural leaps of like, what does this mean? And it's kind of funny to me. And Bashir's eating what looks like scrambled eggs, which will always <laughs> make me laugh. <sighs> I do love them. I do love their dates, too. What's not to love? True, true. Are there other dates that we can think of? I'm sure there are if we put the work into it, but as far as awkward dinner things, I think we're more we're more invested in bad things happening in these social <laughs> settings. Well, I will say that the Garishir dates went much better than when Chabel tried to bring Plomeek soup to Spock <laughs> and he threw it. <laughs> Sometimes you put your heart out there, you try and reach out to someone by making them food and they yeet it right in your face. <laughs> Oh, poor chapel. Poor chapel. (laughs) And so Discovery is not without its fair share of awkward scenes. Oh, hell no. If we're talking about memorable meals, it's hard to top Forget-Me-Not. Oh, my gosh. just aired. And spoilers for anybody who has not seen this scene. But, yeah. So Saru is like, I... I've got this crew. Their morale is low. I know it'll work. I'll give them a pizza party. That always works. <laughs> okay, kids, we lost the game this week. But you know what? We're still having the pizza party. You know why? Because you're all winners to me. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many insanely awkward, like, work buffet. Oh, my gosh, like, right? What's it? Potluck. <laughs> Work potlucks where I'm just like, oh, I'll bring chips. Uh, okay. This this feels like such a perfect extension of the idea that Star Trek is, uh, to a certain degree, a workplace drama. 
and that the uncomfortable get to forced social gatherings are a part of that. A hundred percent. Yeah. I also love that before this episode aired, there was a screen cap of uh, Giorgio going around people being like, oh, Giorgio is giving me big, your gay aunt showing up at Thanksgiving dinner to just watch the drama play out vibes. She is goals in this scene. where She's just like, not bothered. The whole, like, she is completely indifferent to the awkwardness. I came here to watch people get attacked, and I am having such a great time. (laughs) To me, she read as, like, your goth teenage cousin who's just determined not to cooperate with this happy family dinner. (laughs) Yes. That's what I was like. I was always in the corner reading a book and being like, nobody understands me. I don't get, these people don't get me, mom. And then she steals (laughs) the wine at the end. Like yes. you do, like you do. When she walked out with the whole fucking, with the whole cariff of booze and was just like, bye. I was like, oh, girl. Toodles. <laughs> I got, I got what I came for. The the juxtaposition of Saru trying to give like this inspiring speech. Oh, bless get everybody, him. everybody, like the team boosting. And then Giorgio is just like, mm. And he made this beautiful table, and he made food for all the different people and different species, and just everything fell apart. There's such a degree to which Saru is is the mom friend, and I love it. (laughs) I truly, and I mean this so sincerely, I truly appreciate his leadership style when it comes to mental health. Yeah! Because he is the only one. I remember when Tilly was like, she had the ghost girl. Like, the mushroom ghost girl or whatever. That was. <laughs> and, and she wouldn't tell anyone. And afterwards, Saru's like, you have, to, you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And it's like, thank you. Somebody get a decent counselor on this ship because Saru cannot be doing all of your counseling. But he's trying so hard. Oh, he's a good egg. He is such a good boy. (laughs) But, I mean, one thing that I appreciate about this scene is how when there is hurt underneath, it comes out. Yeah. And it's really hard to avoid that. Mm -hmm. So you have this whole Detmer versus Stamets kind of showdown where it's like this stuff has been festering and... They're not going to let it fester anymore. They're going to, you know, if there had been Alfarian hair pasta. <laughs> he would have been thrown, yeah. I appreciate, though, that certain people left, but they cooled down and they came back. Yeah. And they addressed some of their issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We got a comment from Jay who's like, that definitely topped the most awkward, intense dinner I can recall in all of Star Trek. That blood haiku, goddamn. Which, I mean, what can you say? But yeah, that's accurate. Goddamn. The only way they could really top this is if they did another episode that was an uncomfortable dinner event, but did it in real time, and that's just the whole episode. <laughs> A short trek. Yes, and the audience is forced to sit through it. That's pretty funny. That would, I would find that amazing. <laughs> Speaking of Discovery and Giorgio, I have to say that one of the most disturbing things that's ever been on Star Trek is Giorgio choosing her Kelpian to eat in the Mirror Universe. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever get over that. And then her offering Michael the Ganglia. 
And that's and it's only then that Michael realizes what that was all about and is like, oh god. What? <laughs> yeah, Lydia on Facebook said, can't really say it's a favorite moment, <laughs> but it certainly sticks out as a disturbingly memorable meal. Well said, Lydia. It's an effective moment. <laughs> I love when they're in the Ryan outpost on Kronos and Michael tells Tilly she's eating space whale. Ugh. More matter. <laughs> I'm eating a critter face. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, goodness. There's so many to choose from. <sighs> so you asked me to remind everyone that we can't talk about them all. So please don't send us emails about how we forgot your favorite one. Because we've got 50 years of TV that we're working through in an hour here. Yeah. So I'll remind you, but I know it won't do anything. So just, yeah. I mean, roast us for all the ones that we forgot. <laughs> forgot. And didn't do. But are there any that people want to discuss that like really stood out as cool memorable meals my favorite is from deep space nine in the cards because that's like my go-to comfort episode and at the beginning they have to establish that everybody is depressed so they have (laughs) a dinner in cisco's quarters where the war isn't going well everyone's depressed they're practically crying as their cups but the whole scene Worf is off in the corner pretending to look at a mask on the wall so he doesn't have to participate in the conversation (laughs) i didn't even notice that (laughs) and at the very end cisco's like okay Worf, you can go now it's over (laughs) see replace mask with pet yeah of some kind and that's me at every party (laughs) where's the dog i want to go talk to the dog nor everybody else and that scene is so effective too because we've seen previous scenes about what it's like having a food-based get-together at cisco's and it's usually in it in the past has been really fun and genial and everyone just chilling out and now it's super tense and uncomfortable yeah i do like though how um dinners at cisco's are usually him cooking and that in the future when you have replicators someone cooking is a big deal yeah i love that I love, um, we get to see that in the TNG episode, Times Squared, when Riker invites everyone over for omelets and serving everyone up. And then it turns out they're weird alien eggs and everyone's like, oh, no, except for Worf, who's like, this is great. Can I have yours? Yeah, uh, Carrie, Carrie from, from Facebook said basically Riker making eggs in Times Squared and nobody liking them except Worf <laughs> as her favorite. When I was re-watching that bit, it did re- bring up an interesting question, though, because I was watching it with my roommate Dakota, and he, he noticed that Data gets served up eggs, and he was like, so does Data eat? And I'm like, I don't think he really eats. He's like, does he just have like a garbage disposal in there? Like, the- he puts food in his mouth and then you hear, <laughs> or does he have to go off and use the little androids room? That's funny. Yeah. I have to say that one of my favorites is also TNG. It's Sins of the Father, and it, it's with Kern gets that <laughs> that that really awkward buffet, and he's like, "I shall try some of your burned, replicated bird meat." <laughs> like- Very much goth kid at the family gathering energy there, also. <laughs> Star Trek's pretty good at awkward buffets because there's also a really good one in uh, TOS at in Journey to Babel, yeah. which is also where we finally get we get the Andorians and the Tellarites for the first time. I really love that episode and that buffet and the little colorful food cubes mm-hmm. that do not look like something you want to ingest, but they're pretty. <laughs> they're so pretty, <laughs> and therefore I would ingest them. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that was another one where it's like family. Because we get Sarek and Amanda 
showing up and Spock being like, oh, and yeah, I have a family, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Spock out of here. Spock out. Oh, you know what I forgot was Voyage Home, the dinner in the Italian restaurant. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. But they had a pretty nice time there, didn't they? It was very congenial, but also like, you know, I'm from the future. A little bit awkward. Yeah, you're right, sir. That is such a good one. That's a much better first date than Garishir got. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) One that um, always comes to mind for me is in the DS9 episode, Cardassians, when the O'Briens are having dinner and serving it up for the kid Rugal, who is genetically Cardassian, but grew up on Bajor, and... Keiko, bless her heart, is like, I thought I'd make some food from your home planet. And nobody likes it. And it's just kind of like a, but this isn't my culture, though. And O'Brien's like, this is disgusting. And Rugal is like, this is disgusting. And they both get to have that moment of, no, thank you. (laughs) And it kind of reminded me of, you always hear about that experience of someone's well-meaning, but ultimately dippy parents being like, I thought I'd try and serve up some of your culture's food. Which I have had happen before and had not have had go not well. But it does remind me about how sometimes bad food can be such a wonderful bonding experience. I have a great aunt who liked to share the story of when she married her husband who was Jewish. She was meeting his family for the first time over a big dinner. There was gefilte fish. And she's like, oh gosh, I'm a nice Midwestern girl. How do I eat this? Uh, And like the first genuine conversation she ever got to have with her future mother-in-law was her leaning over going... <clears throat> uh, cough, put the napkin to your mouth and then put it in your lap. That's how you pretend <laughs> how you get it off your plate without eating it. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. My great aunt used to make jello molds with weird stuff in them, like celery. <laughs> but you know what? As a family, we still laugh about them to this day. So, <laughs> I mean, there are foods that are actually bad and I know are bad but I still love yeah. just because of nostalgia purposes. Yes. And then there's food that's bad that I am like, how did I ever eat that? But like, <laughs> okay, for example, Thanksgiving, let's bring it right back around circle <laughs> of life. That green bean casserole yeah. that everyone makes in the Midwest. I, I don't know if you make it outside yep. the Midwest. I make it. Oh, yeah. But I'm making it. The mushroom soup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, same here. It, it's terrible. Like It's, it's so terrible. bad for you, but it's part of the experience. It's so mushy and, like, almost tasteless, but, like, I love it. And one of my cousins is actually, like, a really, really good cook. Like, he went to a couple years of culinary school and everything, and he was like, okay, I'll make it. And he made it, like, a good version, Mm -hmm. and it was, like, steamed green beans and, like... Like, he made the mushroom soup himself and everything, and it was like, nobody ate it. <laughs> it was like, it's not that's the- not what we want. We want the mushy crap. Like, <laughs> we want the mushy crap that tastes so good when you can't sleep and get up at 3 a.m. You put it and mix it with mashed potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> the closest I have to a secret with that one is use fresh green beans, steam them separately, and then put them in so they'll be just, you know, a little crunchy and less mushy in your casserole. Yeah, but see, that's not what I want. I want the, <laughs> the, the, the green beans that you get from a can that just dumps out like... From a can? Gooey. I frozen. 
<laughs> That's funny. I feel like this is similar to people's attachment to the cranberry sauce that's from a can that has the ridges. Yeah, some people just have to have it still can yeah. shaped and some people have to make it from scratch. Yeah, but I love how everyone has got their own thing that's like the I know it's gross, but this is our thing. Yeah, I I have a of of a couple of those things where it's like it doesn't matter that it's gross. I still love it. Yeah, our family does clam dip. Which sounds horrifying, I know, but is a sacred <laughs> tradition in my mother's family. So my family is doing Zoom Thanksgiving, so we'll yeah. see how awkward that is. Same here. Like, with the extended family. Oh my gosh. Ooh. But I don't know how Zoom Zoom Thanksgiving is going to work. That's going to be tough, I think. I know that things are going to be tough this year for people, so just know that at least it can't be as bad as some of these terrible meals that we have discussed from Star Trek. At least you are not watching William Shatner get paid $20 a bite to eat blue gelatinous something. Squid. Squid is delicious. I I will say that. Probably not raw with blue food coloring. No, that sounds painful. So if you're looking for something to be thankful for, you can be thankful for the fact that you don't need to eat the blue food from Undiscovered Country. All right, cool. Is there any other meals that anybody wants to bring up before we wrap up? I do. I've got one more. And that is the first bi- the first dinner scene we get in Enterprise between Trip to Paul and Archer in Broken Bow. Because it's just... I was talking earlier with the quote of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they are so clearly just kind of being crappy towards T'Pol. Like, oh, we know you're a vegetarian, but we're going to eat these big honking steaks and joke about cannibalism while we're eating them while you're very clearly uncomfortable with it. Such a dick move. We did also get a comment from Fred on Twitter that for about Enterprise. It said, just watched Extinction from Enterprise Season 3. Oh my gosh. Archer, Hoshi, and Reed get turned into apes and eat bugs out of a gourd. Had me howling with laughter, though I don't think that's what the writers were going for. Oh, hell no. But it's pretty freaking funny to watch Scott Bakula on all fours trying to break into a gourd. (laughs) I look forward to it. You can quote me on that one. (laughs) Awesome. Any, Any other final thoughts? I'm really hungry now. (laughs) me too all right well that was really fun thanks for joining me to talk about awkward meals in star trek y'all there's nothing more fun than discussing other people's awkward situations (laughs) it's true right don't you feel a little bit better about your last dinner party yes i do i do well great so, Grace, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. That is B-O-N-E-C-R-U-S-H-E-R-J-E-N-K. That's on Twitter. And you can also find me crying over store-bought pumpkin pies. <laughs> and Sarah, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Sarah Miyoko, S-A-R-A-H, M-S and Mary, I-Y-O-K-O. And you can find my fanzine Star Trek Quarterly on Facebook. And I'm also doing a weekly discovery podcast on the YouTube channel for Dying of Exposure. Very nice. And I'm Andy. You can find me on Twitter at First Time Trek. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. 
And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. We're thankful for you listening. Aww. <laughs>